Ready? All right. Well, good morning, and welcome to Sunday School. By this point in our study of Genesis 1 and 2, we have walked through God's acts on the first six days of creation. But God wants us to know more. He wants us to know more in particular about man's creation. So even though the fundamental summary of creation ends in Genesis 2-3, God, through Moses, then goes back to tell us more about the creation of man and woman in the next part of Genesis, Genesis 2, verses 4 to 25. And the second description is not alternative to the first one. It's not as if we have two different creation accounts, which we can't really reconcile, but we just stuck them both in there. It's not an alternative. It's a complementary description. It's an expansion of what has already been said in chapter 1. And Genesis 2 is incredibly rich with information and application relevant for our lives today. So let's take a look at this new foundational text. Here's what we want to accomplish in today's class on Lesson 4, Adam and Eve. Oh, I guess I don't have my outline slide. thought I did. But we're going to examine the Genesis 2 account, and we're going to consider whether this account can fit with an evolutionary view. We'll answer whether it truly contradicts the Genesis 1 account. I just asserted that it didn't, but we'll consider some objections that it does. And then we'll discuss some implications from this chapter for how we must think and live. So let's get to it by praying first. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that you are the creator, you are mighty, you are awesome, and the way you created man and woman is truly awesome and instructive. So help us to understand. Help me to be able to teach it and explain it clearly and accurately. And God, I pray that we would appreciate the implications of it, especially for our society today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn to our main passage for today, which is Genesis 2, verses 4 to 25. Genesis 2, 4 to 25, on page 2, if you're using the Pew Bible. Gotta love that. And let's see what further details God wanted Israel to know as they were going into the Promised Land, and also for us to know about the creation of man and woman. Genesis 2, verses 4 to 25, and I'll read the passage. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord, that is Yahweh God, made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for Yahweh God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed man from the ground, or formed man from man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Yahweh God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden 
to cultivate it and keep it. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well then, let's start with some basic observations of this passage. Notice how verse 4 reinforces what we're looking at in what we just read. We see the phrase, this is the account of. Now, that phrase all by itself, what genre of literature does it suggest this next passage is? This is narrative. This is historical narrative again. It says, this is the account. Actually, the word translated account literally means descent or family or generation. So the phrase that read more literally, these are the generations of. It's actually a literary feature in the book of Genesis. Ten times we see this phrase, these are the generations of, as we go through the book of Genesis. And it's really all throughout. Uh, just to give you three other examples, Genesis 6-9. Genesis 6-9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Genesis 11:27. now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Genesis 25, 19, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Now, what genre is the material in these other passages of Genesis? Genesis 6, Genesis 11, Genesis 25. It's historical narrative. Therefore, if we have the same phrase over there as we have here, that gives us even more reason to understand Genesis 2 as historical narrative. The phrase itself suggests that. Its use elsewhere in Genesis suggests that. And that's important. This is another reason why we don't take Genesis 1 and 2 as figurative, poetic, not historical accounts. Now, there are many people who would like to divide Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 and 2 from the rest of Genesis. Like, okay, this is where the history starts. But we see the same kind of phrasing used here as used elsewhere. So Moses treats this account as historical narrative. We should as well. Now, notice the timing, though, of the account that we're getting here in Genesis 2. The first actual happening in this passage is in verse 7. That's uh, when we see something actually taking place, uh, man being formed. Now, on what day of creation was man created? Day 6, very good. But if you look back at verses 5 and 6 of this passage, though these verses don't describe anything happening, they do give us some info related to the narrative. And verse 5 says that, 
there's something missing from the earth. What's missing? Okay, rain, but before we even get to that, yeah, shrubs or plants of the field. And we might say all plants or maybe just two types of plants. Now, according to Genesis 1, on what day were plants created? Day 3. Plants created day 3, man created day 6. Now, as you noted, right after we're told that plants or certain plants are missing, we get a, a reason for that. A for is supplied. The word for in the text indicates the author is giving us a reason for what he just said. And he says there's no shrubs, there's no plants of the field for, and he gives us two reasons. What are those reasons? There's no rain and no one to till the ground, no man to cultivate the ground. That's interesting. Notice also verse 6. It starts with, a, another transition word, this one, but, indicates contrast. What's the contrast presented? Well, there's no rain and there's no man, but there is what? There's a mist. The word can actually also be translated stream. So it could be mist or spring or stream coming up from the ground. I think I favor stream because we learn later on that there's a river that goes through Eden. But there's a terrestrial source. There's something within the earth that is watering the whole face of the ground. So there's no rain. But there is this terrestrial source. The plants of the earth have a mechanism for gaining their necessary water. Then verse 7 says God creates man. So this is interesting. Verse 5, it sounds like we're starting on day 3 because there's no plants yet, or at least there are no two types of plants. But verse 7 sounds like we're starting on day 6 when man is created. Hmm. How are we supposed to reconcile these two details? What day of creation is this exactly? Well, we'll come back to that in the interpretation step. Just wanted you to notice those things. But do note, at least for now, the narrative sequence actually starts in verse 7. 5 and 6, background information, verse 7, narrative starts. Now, more observations. Notice how the first man is created. It says, out of the dust, or the dirt, or the soil of the ground, God formed him. Now, very interesting terms in Hebrew. First, one thing you might not appreciate reading from the English, but the name for man, Adam, Adam, and soil, Adama, sound very similar in Hebrew. If you hear that again, that's Adam and Adama. And the root idea between those two words is the idea of redness. Compare the word or the name Edom, which we learn later on in Genesis. It means red. It's got that same root, that Dom sort of root. Edom means red. Adam, he probably had a sort of redness that looked like the redness of the soil of that area of the world. Anyways, but notice the connection between Adam and Adama and the way that man is made. He's made from the soil, even the red soil. And the word formed is interesting here. The, formed, the Hebrew verb for formed is also used, customarily used, for a potter fashioning a vessel. And they often form them out of what? Clay. These are very appropriate terms. Actually, the particle form of this verb in Hebrew just means potter. So God forms, like a potter forms clay, a man out of the dust of the ground. And then God breathed life into this man's nostrils, the breath of life. 
And it says the man became a living being, or we could say a living creature or a living soul. Uh, the word for soul or creature or being is the word nefesh in Hebrew. Now, there could be some things we might assume about this term uh, if we don't know how certain terms are used in Hebrew. It's interesting that there are three words, three main words in Hebrew for describing life, describing a living being or a living creature. There's nefesh, usually translated soul, ruach, which means uh, spirit or breath, and then there's some form of chayim, which means life. You know, lachaim, right? The, the, the toast means to life. And those terms are all used of man in the Bible. But they are also all used of animals in the Bible. Animals are said to have nefesh. They are said to have ruach. They are said to have chayim. So, as special as man is, as he's being created as a living being, those terms, understand, they don't just apply to man. They also apply to animals. And it's also interesting, you may notice in the text, from what are animals created? They are also created from the ground. Genesis 1.24 or Genesis 2.19 in this passage. So you might think, oh man, I thought man was special. I mean, like God's forming him, he's got this nefesh. Is he no different, really, than an animal, also formed from the ground, also has the same things that they do? Well, don't forget what we saw last time. There is one thing that definitely sets apart man from animals. Man, according to Genesis 1, is the only one made in the image of God. No animal, no other part of creation is created in that way. But there is something else unique here in Genesis 2-7. Because even though the word ruach, which is often translated spirit or breath, is applied to both animals and man in the Bible. The word for breath here, when speaking about the breath of life that God breathes into man, is a different word, neshama. It also means breath, but the Bible only uses it to describe God's breath and man's breath, never an animal's breath or life. So there is something, even in the terms that describe man's living quality, that is different. And man versus animal. Man's life essence, his breath, his soul is different than an animal's. Though both animal and man receive their life breath from God, the breath of God in man is different than the breath of God in animals. Let's keep observing. Notice how the garden in the land of Eden came to be and what it was. It says God himself planted a garden and he put the first man and many trees in it, including the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Another interesting language note, the name Eden in Hebrew is also the same word for bliss. So this land of Eden, this garden of Eden, it could also be translated the garden of bliss, the land of bliss. But notice man is given a role in this garden. He's not just placing it, what's he supposed to do? to cultivate it and to keep it. He's got a job. He's got work to do. And notice the specific command that God gives to Adam in verse 16. This is actually the first time we see the word command in the Bible. God commands Adam by telling him, you can eat of every tree of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he warns that the penalty for doing so is death. And the day you eat it, bayom, when you eat it, you will die. 
Now down in verse 18, notice that God identifies something as not good. What's not good? For man to be alone. Now you've probably heard this before, but it is striking. Up to now, every pronouncement from God about creation has been good, good, very good. I made this good, made this very good. But now, God looks at creation that he himself made, and he said, there's something not good. Something not good. And that should get our attention as listeners, as readers. What is this not good thing in the middle of God's very good creation? It's that man is alone. Not literally alone. He's got God. He's got animals around him. But he's without a suitable helper or a companion. Literally, the phrase in Hebrew is a helper opposite him, a helper corresponding to him. God observes this, and he says, this is not good. And in response to this observation, notice that God brings some animals to Adam to name them. And here we're told that the animals were also formed by God out of the ground. Adam does name the animals, but the text tells us, oh, I should... Before I say that, note, Adam doesn't go and find the animals. The animals are brought to Adam. Uh, verse 19, God formed them, and then the middle of the verse, and brought them to the man. He doesn't go and find the animals. They're brought to him. And notice not all the animals are brought to him. Specifically mentioned the cattle, the flying creatures, and the beasts of the field. But among these animals, Adam did not find a helper comparable to him, corresponding to him. So then, God does something else. God creates the first woman. But notice how she is created. She's not created like the man, formed out of the ground. Rather, God put Adam into a deep sleep and did some reconstructive surgery. God took one of Adam's ribs, or a piece of Adam's side, and out of Adam's own flesh and bone, God builds a woman. And what does God do with the woman once he's finished creating her? He brings her to the man. He brings her to Adam. And then we see Adam's response. See the word now in verse 23. Many have said, and I think this is, this is correct, probably has the idea of at last, finally, here's what I've been looking for. I think you're getting an indication of what's going on in Adam's heart. He's gladdened by this. And this is the first section of poetry that we see in the Bible. It's set aside as poetry in your, in your translation, and I think that's correct. And that also tells us something about Adam's state of mind. He starts speaking in a poetic way at seeing woman. And what does he say? Well, he instantly recognizes that the woman came from him and is like him. He says, she is my own flesh and bone. And he calls her woman. And why is that? Well, the text tells us, because she was taken out of man. Now, English shows the correspondence between the words man and woman. It kind of makes sense, right? He's called her woman because she was taken out of man, and then you look at those two words, and they're like, oh, yeah, like, they're connected. Woman has the word man in it. So that, like, it for, refers back to how woman was created. Now, that works in English, but does it work in Hebrew? It actually does. Because even though most of the passage uses the word adam to refer to man, uh, by the way, kind of interesting that 
the question in the text of when you should translate it Adam versus man, because Adam means man, or it can mean mankind. And most of the text refers to the man or refers to Adam with that term. But when we get down to verse 23, it's a different word. It's a different word for man when he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's the word ish, which means man or husband. And the word for woman is isha. So it's actually the same in Hebrew as it is in English, where the word for woman actually contains the word for man. Again, a reference to how woman was created, ish versus isha. Finally, notice how verses 25 mentions nakedness, but in a way that's different from how nakedness is spoken of pretty much anywhere else in the Bible. The first man and woman, we are told, were naked and unashamed. They had no reason to hide from each other or from God. They didn't wear any clothes. While in the rest of the Bible and today, nakedness is often associated with vulnerability, shame, and the reminder of sin. We do wear clothes today. Now, we've observed a lot. There's more I'm sure we could observe, and there's, there's much here. But with just what we've observed, let's go to some important interpretation questions. First, do the details of this passage fit with an evolutionary understanding of human origins? What would you say? Not at all. This is totally different than prevailing executive theory as to how man and woman originated. The passage says man is made directly from the dust, from something non-living. He was not evolved from apes or lesser life forms. Woman is said to be made directly from man's body. She did not evolve alongside him. Moreover, woman was made while man was sleeping. So that couldn't have taken a very long time. It's not like man went to a hibernative state and a million years later we got woman, or 10,000 years later. No, this account contradicts, it rules out evolution as the way that God made man. That's not what the text says, and the text gives itself as history. But someone might say, hey, this passage is just figurative. The original audience would have understood that these details are not to be taken literally. However, we've already seen a problem with that objection because this passage claims to be history, the actual account of how God created man and woman, in line with the other history, the other records of the generations of in Genesis. But we can say more because there are plenty of people who do say, you know, this, you shouldn't take this literally. It's just figurative. That's not the way the New Testament takes it. Let me give you some examples. New Testament passages that confirm a literal understanding of this account of man and woman's creation one of them is 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 10. Just to give you the context, Paul is making an argument about how the church should conduct itself when they come together, and he makes a specific exhortation about hair and head coverings in the church related to symbols of authority. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 to 10. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. 
Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. Now, we're not going to follow Paul's main argument and exhortation there. We're just looking at his support. But notice what Paul does say in support of this exhortation. He goes back to creation and how man and women originated. He says, women, woman, originated from man. And that's what Genesis 2 says. That doesn't make sense naturally. You say, no, no, obviously man comes from the woman. I mean, he has to be born. He says, not originally. Woman came from man. But listen to another passage. Further on in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 to 49. In this context, Paul's talking about the resurrection and the difference between Adam and Christ as representative heads of their people, of those in their line. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 to 49. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, again, we're not going to follow what Paul is saying altogether about the resurrection there, but notice what he's using as support. goes back to creation, goes back to the first man, and he says he came from the earth. He came from the ground. He was earthy. And so are we, who have been born as descendants of Adam. And then one more, 1 Timothy 2.13. 1 Timothy 2.13, in the middle of making an argument about how men are to be spiritual authorities and teachers in the church, Paul says this as support, 1 Timothy 2.13, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Again, that's exactly what Genesis 2 says. Adam was the first human formed, and Eve was created afterwards. They weren't created at the exact same time, though they were created the same day, pretty close together. It was Adam first and then Eve. So just from these three passages, we see they actually all come from Paul, but the Holy Spirit, God, affirms in the New Testament that Genesis 2 is fact. It is to be taken as history. It is to be taken literally. In fact, it becomes an argument for how Christians and the church ought to conduct themselves. These are not mere cultural items. These are not just like funny poetry things that we embrace as tradition. This is historical fact, and it has implications for how we live today. That's significant. Really, the ultimate conclusion here is that the details of Genesis 2 account and the corroborating statements of the New Testament, they do not fit with prevailing evolutionary ideas today regarding man. So we got we ought again to reject efforts to unite evolutionary theory with creation. There should not be integration here. Adam and Eve were not imaginary people, mere symbols of an evolutionary process. Adam and Eve were not two early spiritless hominids that God breathed his spirit into and then he turned them into humans. They were like subhumans and then became humans when God did something special with them. No, the text can be trusted. Adam was the first human, he was created, not from another creature, but from the dirt. And then woman was created, woman was created from another creature, but she wasn't evolved. She was supernaturally fashioned into a woman from the first man's own bone and flesh. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. But someone might say, but what about the evidence? What about the scientific evidence? What about all the ape-human transition creatures in the fossil record? 
what about these hominids that have been discovered? Well, here's a good example for how we are to respond to these kinds of scientific claims based on evidence data. Remember to start with the Bible. Start with the Bible. The trustworthy word of God must be your foundation for interpreting whatever experiences or data you encounter in the world. Or data, whatever you experience in the world, information you encounter, it doesn't say anything by itself. No skeleton just pops up and says, hey, I'm an evolutionary transition. Your presuppositions, your assumptions, the things you bring to the data, they are going to cause you to interpret it the way that you do, one direction or another. All data must be interpreted, and it must be interpreted according to assumptions, according to presuppositions. But your interpretations are only valuable, they're only valid if you start with the right assumptions, if you start with the right presuppositions. And you won't do that for so many things in life unless you start with the Bible. So when you start with the Bible, you assume that the Bible's true, and then you look at these skeletons and other fossils and things like that, we find that they aren't convincing evidence like many people say that they are. They're only convincing if you've already assumed evolutionary framework, if you've already presupposed that evolution is true. Because you say, look, this fits exactly with our theory. But if you start with the Bible, you could say, well, actually, this fits exactly with our theory. These fossils that you say are transitioned, they can be easily explained as merely the skeletons of extinct varieties of apes or early varieties of human beings. These don't have to be transition creatures. That fits into your interpretation model. But if we start with the Bible, we have a way to easily explain these things as well. But the Bible is trustworthy. By the way, hang on a second, Mark. We might have the impression that there's so much fossil data out there. But really, and this comes from Answers in Genesis, but this is reliable, 95% of the fossils that we have today are of shallow water organisms like coral and shellfish. So people talk about, oh, the fossil data, the fossil data. Most of it is these marine organisms, shallow ones, coral and shellfish, 95%. Less than 0.25% of all fossils that have been discovered are vertebrates, let alone humans or apes. So very, very small amount of the fossil record is human or ape. And of that, of that 0.25%, less than 1% of that consists of more than a single bone. 1% of 0.25% of all fossils consists of more than a single bone of a human or ape. What does that mean? That means that when you find that tooth or that piece of a bone or something like that, and you say, this belongs to a human, this belongs to an ape, this belongs to a transition creature, you don't have a lot to go off of. You really have to rely on your assumptions. That's why I say, don't be, don't be scared of people saying, like, oh, what about the fossil evidence? It's really dependent on your presuppositions. And you're not going to come at it with the right presuppositions unless you start with the Bible. So I'm not afraid of the fossil record. The fossil record fits with what the Bible says. I'm sure there are some questions, there are some things that are very interesting, but fossil record does not contradict Genesis 2. You can say something, Mark.
there's a whole that's a whole another separate issue but you're right there have been in efforts to prove the evolutionary view and provide these transition creatures and evidence of evolution there have been frauds outright frauds perpetrated and sometimes it's it's not uh, on purpose sometimes people really thought something was one thing and then later they're like oh actually that's not you know we thought this was a piece of an ape but it's actually a piece of a chicken or something like that um, it's really difficult when you only have a very small piece but that's why again we don't we shouldn't be afraid of this thing no the the Bible is not contradicted by the fossil record. And if you want more information about this, you can find a lot more in the Answers in Genesis materials. Their website, their books, you can find lots more about that. Lots of videos, too. But still, someone might say, wait, wait, wait. There's another reason we know this must be figurative, and that's because Genesis 1 contradicts Genesis 2. You say it's history, they don't fit together. The Bible can't have errors in it. And if that's true, then one of these passages, or both, has to be figurative say, well, what's the contradiction? Well, people will point to three things. The mention of missing plants in verse 5. Hey, it said there are no plants and man's being created. That's not what Genesis 1 says. Plants are already on the earth. Or verse 19 mentions that animals were created after man was created. Man, God, God creates Adam. And then in the effort to find him a companion, it says he formed all these animals from the ground. Hey, isn't that contradicting Genesis 1? And, come on, let's think about his naming all the animals. You're telling me that can all happen in one day, one 24-hour day, and have Adam go to sleep, and have Eve be formed, and have her brought to the woman, and brought to Adam? That's too much for one day. Got to be figurative. Well, let's respond to each one of those issues. There are two main explanations when it comes to the first issue of plants. Two main explanations for verse 5 and its seeming conflation of day 3 and day 6 of creation. First option is to say that the creation narrative strict chronology does not resume until verse 7. Verses 5 and 6 are just giving some background information, describing some issues of creation that God was intent to address later in that week, the creation week. There was no water for day 3's plants. Plants were formed, but there was nothing to water them because there was no rain on the earth yet. So, God took care of this situation, verse 6, by creating a watering source from the ground, the mist or the spring or whatever it was. So, this is just saying, okay, there was this problem that God sought to fix, and he did that later in the creation week. Oh, there's another problem. There's no man to take care of the plants. Well, God was going to take care of that too. Later in the creation week, day 6, Man is created. And that's where the narrative really resumes. It says, there's no man to take care of the plants of the field. God created man, uh, verse 7, God formed the first man from the ground. So you say, we don't have to interpret verses 5 and 6 as to say, this was the situation when man was created. No, this was the situation in the creation week, and God was dealing with it as the week progressed. And man was the ultimate solution for taking care of the plants. That's one explanation. Second option, though, has to do with which plants are not yet on the earth, according to verses 5 and 6. Because it doesn't say all plants. It identifies two types of plants. Now, John MacArthur, Tim Chafee from Answers in Genesis, the persons who have responded to this issue, they don't interpret verse 5 to mean all plants, but just two types. We have the shrub of the field and the plant of the field. These interpreters say... 
These are two types of plants that did not appear until after man's creation and or after the fall of man. Shrub of the field could be describing weeds and thorn bushes. These are types of plants that thrive in intermittent watering conditions, like rainfall, while other plants drive and wither. By the way, this is kind of like a, a something that dawned on me probably after I was an adult, but weeds are not really a separate kind of plants. Weeds are just plants, right? But they're plants who somehow really have an edge over all the other plants, and they just overrun things. That's why you get all the dandelions in your field, and you're like, I hate these weeds. Dandelions are just another kind of plant, but they're really good at reproducing. They're really good at surviving under intermittent watering conditions. Other plants, like, they have to have everything perfect, otherwise they die. So weeds are just another kind of plant, but they're annoying because they do so well even when conditions aren't great. And, and they also come with other features that are not nice, like thorns and things like that sometimes. Presumably, the world did not see rain until after the fall or after the flood. Rain is an unreliable watering source. It's better to have something constant from the ground. If there were no rain, then you wouldn't have these overrunning plants taking out all the other plants, taking up their ground. So there were, no, there were at that time no weeds in the field. There's no shrubs, no thorny, weedy plants that are just going to annoy you because there's no rain yet. What about the plants of the field? Well, plants of the field, that is a special phrase used throughout the Old Testament to refer specifically to crops, specifically to grain-type plants, things you plant in fields and harvest. As others have noted, man was not created in the beginning as a farmer, but as a gardener or a tender of an orchard. Without getting too involved in the explanation here, the basic idea of option number two for explaining verses five and six is that Moses is really setting up the audience for the difference between the world before the fall and after the fall, at least when it comes to plants. Moses says, look, do, before Adam sinned, there weren't all these annoying wild bushes that thrived in rainfall and crowded out other plants because everything was watered from the ground. And before Adam sinned, man didn't have to work hard to identify, to breed, to cultivate crops. Because God gave man abundant food from the fruit of the trees of the garden. Didn't need to be a farmer. But notice in the curse given to man in Genesis 3.18, well, two types of plants are mentioned. Genesis 3.18, both thorns and thistles, speaking of what comes up from the cursed ground, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. There it is, crops. You're going to be eating plants that you're going to farm. I think that's significant. I think both of these explanations are reasonable. They're both plausible. I go back and forth between which one I think is more likely. But either way, we clearly don't need to push the button for the nuclear option and just say, oh, this passage is figurative, because there are two reasonable explanations for how Genesis 1 and 2 fit together when it comes to talking about plants. But what about the animals? What about the animals of verse 19? Doesn't it say God created animals after he created Adam? Well, here the solution is much simpler. If we're willing to just work with the text and not immediately discount it, we can see that actually the Hebrew verb can be very sensibly, very accurately translated in the pluperfect rather than the simple past. 
What does food perfect mean? Well, in English, it just means you add had to the front of it. Not God formed every beast of the field, but God had formed every beast of the field. This is not saying that something new happened. This is something that had already happened before something else happened. And actually, that's the way the ESV and the NIV both translate this passage. They don't say God formed every beast, but God had formed. So this had already happened. It's not describing a new action from God. It's just referring to how God originally created the animals that were going to be brought to Adam. That makes sense. Again, if we're just interpreting in context as translators who say, all right, this is what was mentioned in Genesis 1. How should we translate this verb? It makes total sense that you would use the pluperfect. So this is not reaching. This is not going for an explanation that doesn't really fit. No, that's totally logical. Totally makes sense. Now, it could be that God did create a special set of animals for Adam to name after God placed Adam in the garden. God is capable of that. But I think it's even more sensible to just translate the Hebrew verb performed in the pluperfect. Had created or had formed rather than formed. Unlike English verbs, Hebrew verbs, and also Greek verbs, they are much more dependent on context for their sense of time, for tense. In English, we say, well, we got past, we got simple past, we got future, we got future perfect, you know, all these different things that you can see grammatically, oh, that's the tense. It's not the same way in Hebrew. A past tense verb can sometimes be translated in the present, depending on the context. Or a past tense verb can be translated in the pluperfect, that is, the had created rather than created. So a lot of it is dependent on context. So again, this is not... This is not some crazy thing that some Bible interpreters are trying to just say, oh, believe this. No, that's, that's the way Hebrew works. So this is not really an issue. But what about the last objection, that this is too much for one day? Naming seems like a especially arduous task. How could Adam have named all the animals and still have had time for the rest of what's described in day six? Well, here again, the answer should be simpler than it might seem, or it is simpler than it might seem, because the naming didn't take as long as you might otherwise have guessed. And why not? Can you think of any reason why the naming wouldn't actually take that long? Okay, so this is under the Lord's sovereignty, and we do see that God actually brought the animals to Adam, and that would be a huge time saver, right? And yes, God did create Adam in a special way. And he's not yet corrupted, so his mental faculties are probably really good at this time uh, under the sovereign hand of God. Are you going to say something, Magda? That's the other thing, right? Remember, there aren't that many animals necessarily on the earth. And it's not like he had to name every single animal he came across, but the kinds of animals. And remember, there, if kinds more or less correspond to our families of animals that we've classified today, then there wouldn't have been that many kinds on the earth. He didn't have to name every dog he came across. He'd just say dog. Or every cat he came across. He doesn't have to say lion, tiger, you know, all those types of things. He just said cat or whatever the equivalent was, whatever he was speaking. It may have been Hebrew, may have been another language, but he called it a name. He just named the kinds. So if you're just naming the kinds, if you've got God bringing the animals to you, and if you're not naming all the animals, notice... The aquatic animals were not included. Say, oh, why not? I'm thinking they're probably not going to make a great companion to Adam since they live in the water and he lives on the land, so they didn't even make the audition. So he didn't have to name all the animals, can't all the animal kinds, 
It was just the ones that were on land. And even among those, it was just the kinds, not every species, not every creature. And with God bringing the animals and with uncorrupted faculties, he could do this. He could do this in a time that wasn't that long. That's not a huge assumption. And besides, that's what the text says. The text says he did it. God did it. Adam did it. We can believe it. This is not unreasonable. So in light of these apologetic answers, there's no reason for us to take Genesis 2 in a different way than we take Genesis 1 or the rest of the chapters of Genesis. Moses and God's Holy Spirit, they wrote these words, these chapters, as a straightforward narrative that we can trust in all their details. We should not seek a figurative interpretation of these passages just to accommodate Old Earth evolutionary assumptions. But let's move on from the apologetic aspect of this text to a few other questions of interpretation. What does this passage reveal to us about God and his character? What would you say? God is specific in naming man and woman? God does create man. I can't remember if the text says that God names man. Maybe. But the naming that's mostly taking place here is Adam naming the animals, and then he does name woman. That's true. But what about God? Yeah, Magda. Yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. We see part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that relational aspect. Man is made in God's image, and yet it's not good for man to be alone. And so there's that theme of, not just relationship, but also even unity and diversity. Because God does create for Adam someone who is from Adam's own being, is the same as Adam, yet distinct from Adam. He didn't create another man for Adam. He created a woman as wife. Like God, we humans are designed for relationships, but not relationships with those who are completely like us. They have to be fundamentally like us, but not totally like us. And this, I believe, as an aside, is one of the reasons why God's design for marriage is heterosexual. He didn't design us for a homosexual marriage relationship because it reflects him. It's supposed to be this idea of unity and diversity in mankind in general, but especially in the marriage relationship. So we do see that man is relational and in connection, God is relational. We can also see that God is loving. He cares about the aloneness of Adam. He doesn't say, hey, you know, that's too bad for him. He notices it. He says that's not good, and he does something about it. Isn't that an example of the beautiful, tender kindness of God? He does care for his creation. He cares for man. And that would be encouraging to the Israelites as they're getting ready to follow God by faith in the promised land. God is still the same loving and generous God today. Because even as the men were saying last week, God does not change. The same caring God here in Genesis 2 is the same God who exists today. I think another thing that we can appreciate from this passage is that God is exalted. Because man is made from dust. Far beneath God's being, right? I mean, how, how much lower can you go if you're literally from the ground? It's God's image imprinted on us. It's his spirit given to us that gives our dust value, not what we otherwise are or produce. 
It is as the psalmist says, and this is kind of like the theme verse for our study, Psalm 8-4, what is man that you take thought of him? This is the psalmist speaking to God. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet God does care. We are but dust. We are dirt from the ground, but our gracious and powerful God not only made us, but he set us, each of us, as under rulers of his grand creation. Truly, I've been given an exalted, undeserved place. But this text doesn't just tell us about God. It tells us a lot about origins. That's part of the point of these first few chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 tells us where the universe came from and where we came from. Oh, but what other origins are explained in this chapter? And I already gave you one of them already. Origin of work. I won't say too much about this, but notice Adam is given work to do before the fall. And that is so different from the way our society thinks about work. Work is a necessary evil. The goal of your working is to stop working so you can retire and just have fun. That's not actually how God designed us. Work is not part of the curse. It has an element of curse in it now. It's toilsome. It's, um, it has a vaporous aspect to it. And yet it's good. God created work as good. And as we Christians, we discover that we actually go to our work with enthusiasm, even if it's something that's, in most people's eyes, not that significant. We say, I was designed to work. I'm going to work for the glory of God. Adam was designed to work. He was put in the garden to cultivate it, to keep it. And also, from what Genesis 1 says, to uh, rule creation on God's behalf. But what else do we see in terms of origins here? Yeah, Danny. Uh, more in Genesis 1, but that's true, the, the origin of the week, the seven-day week, which is so interesting. I don't know if we ever really think about this, right? But it's like something that took place at the beginning of creation still is evident in pretty much every culture of the world where they think about time taking place in weeks, which was what God established when he created the world. Even today, right? We may call the days of the week different names, but that's actually a testament of how God created but that's more of a Genesis 1 thing. What here do we see the origins of explained? Yeah, um, Brian. Right. The origin, first of all, of male and female, but also the origin of their marriage union. This is the origin of marriage explained. The word marriage, of course, is not actually used in this chapter, but we do see words related to marriage, especially in verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A husband or an ish shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his isha, his woman or his wife, and they become one flesh. This is talking about marriage. And the verse, the phrase at the beginning of verse 24 is actually quite instructive because we get this whole account about Adam and Eve and how they were created and how they are brought together in marriage. And then verse 24 says, for this reason. That is to say, what is about to be explained is all based on what I've just shared, Moses says. And he says, and this is why we get married the way that we do today. So what's the reason for that? Well, it's how God created the first marriage. And how did God create the first marriage? By literally taking two people, or making two people out of one body. So when Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it wasn't just being poetic. For him, it was actually quite accurate. 
it described in literal terms his relationship to his wife. But it was also figuratively true. This one-bodiness that was literally shared by Adam and Eve in their creation and in their first marriage, it becomes the pattern, Moses says, for all marriages. Husband and wife become one. They become one flesh, just like Adam and Eve were really one. And that doesn't simply refer to sexual intercourse, though that is part of it. Adam and Eve were more than that. Because remember, what was the impetus for creating woman and for creating the first marriage? It was that God said it is not good for man to be alone. Not that, or, and he needs a helper corresponding to him. He needs a helper suitable to him. God was not saying it's not good for man to lack a sexual partner. He did not say it's not good for man to be unable to reproduce. He said it is not good for man to lack a suitable companion. God created marriage with several purposes. But the primary purpose, as stated here in Genesis 2, even before God blessed the couple to be fruitful and multiply, was to supply companionship. This, then, is the primary sense of being one flesh. It's symbolized in the physical union. But it refers even more deeply to the intimate companionship relationship that a husband and wife have, where another person's blessings, another person's troubles, their whole being, it becomes part of the other. This is why when the Bible speaks about marriage and for a husband caring for his wife or a wife responding to her husband, it's in a way in which, um, how do I want to say this, where when you care for the other, you really care for yourself because you're one flesh after all. In a spiritual, deeply uh, essential sense. There's no separating the benefit that Adam had from the benefit that Eve had or the loss for Adam and the loss for Eve. And so it is for every marriage today. And ultimately, Ephesians 5 says, this is actually the pattern of Christ and his church. Marriage is a good design from God, a gift from God to man, but one of the things that's beautiful about it is that it was ultimately looking to what Christ and the church would be, the relationship of Jesus to those he has saved. They become one with him so that all his blessings and benefits go to them and the troubles of his bride go to Christ, and he takes care of it. That's the gospel. We become joined to Jesus, and he gives us his righteousness, and every blessing in the spiritual places, or in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he takes our sin debt, he takes the wrath due to us, and he says, that's now my problem, and I'm taking care of it once and for all. This is what he did. This is what he did. We don't just see the origin of marriage, but we do see some qualities of marriage emphasized here in the Genesis 2 account, part of how God designed marriage to be. We do see that the man is made the leader in the marriage relationship. Adam was created first. Eve came from Adam. When she was created, she was brought to Adam. Adam names his wife. These all point to Adam's headship in the marriage relationship. Man and women are equal, after all. They are literally the same bone and flesh, both made in the image of God, but the leadership role in marriage has been given to the man. And God has also determined that that leadership role should extend in the church, which is why the New Testament makes clear on the basis of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 that leaders and teachers in the church are to be men, not women. We do also see the exclusivity and the longevity of marriage emphasized in this text. 
if Adam and Eve are indeed the pattern for marriage, then marriage must always be between what and what? One man and one woman. One actual man, one biological man, and one actual woman, one biological woman. And for how long? For life. Because that's consistent with the one body metaphor, isn't it? Body cannot separate from itself. If your body decides to separate from itself, what will happen to you? You're going to be in some serious trouble, and you're probably going to die. If part of your body just is like, just drops off or something. And that's instructive for the one flesh relationship in marriage. The body never seeks to separate from itself. That's the opposite of every single impulse that the body has. It wants to always preserve itself and all its parts. Divorce is the slicing of one body, of the one body of marriage. It makes no sense. It only destroys. And that's therefore no wonder that when teaching about divorce in the New Testament, like in Mark 10, 1 to 9, where does Jesus go for establishing what marriage is really supposed to be? This passage, Genesis 2.24. Of course, there are some, um, there are a, a few situations in which divorce is permitted, but that's never the way that God designed marriage to be. It's not a contractual obligation where as soon as one side doesn't fulfill its part, you say, all right, that's it, I'm out, out of the marriage. No, God says one body. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. Along the same lines, we see from Genesis 2 that sexual pursuits outside of one, your one spouse, they go against God's design. They actually make no sense. An adulteress's body is not the body that God joined you to or will join you to if you're not married yet. You go outside of God's design for one body in marriage. You give yourself and you give your future spouse injury. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body. There's something uniquely self-injuring about sexual sin. And that's certainly true for the marriage relationship. Whether you're in that marriage now or you're going to be, sexual sin, it harms the one flesh. So, many doctrinal implications about marriage here. About work, about gender. So you can see why just making this account figurative has such drastic implications for the Christian faith. Because suddenly those very important doctrines which relate to how we live our lives today, they suddenly lose their basis or they're, they, they're greatly undermined. So many teachings from the scriptures, so much of how we're to live today goes back to just Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So that's why we want to understand it, but we also want to stand on it. We want to defend it and say, no, this really is what God said. And this is to be taken the way God meant it to be taken. This is history. That has implications for how we live today. So to summarize what we've discussed, Genesis 2 <clears throat> is a historic account of man's and women's creation, and it does not fit with the evolutionary theory of human origins. It does have profound implications for how we view men, women, and marriage today. A marriage and one flesh relationship signified by sexual union, they must follow the pattern set by the first man and woman. Anything else will just bring in injury and eventually the angry judgment of God because God loves marriage. That's one thing you will see as you study through the scriptures. God loves marriage and he hates things that violate his good design. 
And part of that is because it, it really mars the picture of Christ in the church. But even going back to Genesis 1 and 2, when you go against the good thing that God created at the beginning, it is such an offense to God. That's why God hates sins against marriage, sexual sin. And it doesn't, it, and it just, uh, we do injury to ourselves when we pursue those things and we injure our spouses. By way of application, and I'll just give these as our last like minute here. Consider meditating on the following. You might have to take a picture of this because there's not really time to discuss it. But first of all, do you praise God for his generous heart and his gracious acts in creating man as male and female? He did such a good thing. God's design is so good. Do you praise him for it? Do you submit to his design? Or do you try and go around it, try and go outside it? What is the best way to contend against the assaults on sex, gender, and marriage in our culture? give you a hint. You got to go to the authoritative scriptures. Don't rely on scientific surveys that can be manipulated and say, oh, this is, you know, this is what's healthiest for families. Go to the scriptures. And remember that those who deviate sexually, they need the gospel. They don't just need to become heterosexual in their desire. They don't just need sexual self-control. They need the gospel. One other thing, uh, this was a point made in our biblical counseling conference, one of the speakers, but I think it's really helpful. Increasingly in our society, people want to identify or they want to define themselves by themselves. They want to look to their own feelings and desires to determine who they really are. And so when you don't affirm that, they say, you're denying my identity. You are hurting me by denying who I truly am. But if we trust the scriptures, we know that's not true. Say, actually, who you really are, God tells you who you are. He wrote in his scripture who you are. I want you to see that. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to just contradict your feelings and desires, but I'm telling you, there's something that's happened to you. There's something that's happened to our world that's made your feelings and desires go out of order. We've all fallen under this corruption and even the sentence of God's judgment. And I didn't come up with this myself, but I know that there's a reliable word. There's the word of God that tells me, tells you who we really are. And I, that's what I want to share with you, and that's why I want to share with you that there's hope. No matter what you feel about your gender or about your sexual desires, I want, to, I want you to know who you really are so that you can have life in God. Of course, before we even tell others about that, we've got to ask that about ourselves. Are you joined to Jesus Christ? That marriage picture that ultimately communicates Christ in the church, are you actually part of that? Or do you affirm all these good things about marriage? You're like, yep, that's right, that's right. People shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't have divorce. And yet, you yourself are guilty of those sins. You yourself don't submit to God's design. And that and other areas. If that's the case, then you're not joined to Jesus. You need to repent. You need to repent and believe. Thank the Lord there is forgiveness. There is cleansing no matter what kind of sins we've been part of, even sins against marriage and sexual sins. But if we have not repented and we do not know the forgiveness of God, we're not joined to Christ, then we are still in Adam and we will die in our sins. Okay, that's all for today. If you have other questions, comments, come talk to me afterwards, but let me close in prayer.
Lord, your design is great. Marriage is a gift, but marriage to Christ is an even greater gift. So that, Lord, if we are never married in this world, that, that's fine if we can be married to Christ. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Where we do go against your design. Lord, we thank you, though, that we are forgiven in Christ. And we pray for this culture, Lord. And increasingly is rebellious against you, even in such fundamental matters of sex and gender. And yet it is just a self-destructive rebellion. We know because we were part of it. All sin is self-destructive. Yet God, help us to bring the message of hope. Not one that's merely based on our opinion or our preferences, Lord, but based on your word. We need you to tell us who we are because we'll otherwise never figure it out. We'll just be like the world, constantly contradicting one another with various theories. You need to tell us what's true, and you do. So thank you, God, that you've given us your word. Help us to believe it. Help us not to be ashamed of it, but to defend it and to proclaim the life-saving gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.